Let's pray together. Oh God, embrace the cross. What higher honor could there be in our journey through this life? For Calvary, it all comes clear. Let it come clear here once again, we humbly pray. Let Your Word speak and let our minds comprehend. In Jesus' name, Amen. I want to begin today with a story from a great book. New York Times bestseller, title of the book, Amazing Grace, A Vocabulary of Faith. Kathleen Norris. Have you heard of Kathleen Norris? You've heard of her? She wrote Dakota. She wrote Cloister Walk. Anyway, she's an acclaimed writer now. Actually, she fled New York. She, she and her husband were writers in New York. Fled New York, the confines of that urban sprawl, and she moved back to the Dakotas there the, from whence they hailed. And she has written several books that have really... Uh, Cause the nation, those who bought the books, to ponder things of the things of the eternal in the everyday, everywhere America kind of living that we do. Anyway, in this book, Amazing Grace, vocabulary of faith, different words, faith, hope, grace, so on. This is the word for Bible. Okay, the word Bible, and this is the chapter. What caught my eye was the opening line to the story. And here's the opening line. Then let me read the story to you. Opening line: The scariest story I know about the Bible is this. Oh, I'm ready for it. Lay it on me. All right, here we go. One Saturday night in a local steakhouse, my husband and I got to visiting with an old-timer, a tough, self-made man in the classic American sense. His grandparents had been dirt-poor immigrants, homesteading in western South Dakota, living in a sod house, barely making a living off the land in the early years. But the family had prospered, and he and his brothers had built up a large ranch of many thousands of acres. This man had gotten where he was by... By being single-minded, he got there by being single-minded when it came to money. Making as much of it as possible and spending as little as he could. You know people like that. Except when it came to his wife and kids. They always drove new cars. Alright, get the picture? We knew him, I'll call him Arlo, as a taciturn, a quiet man. But that night he was in a talkative mood Possibly because he had recently encountered a situation in which all the money in the world could not help him. He was facing chemotherapy for an advanced, probably terminal cancer. You get the picture. They're sitting down at a steakhouse together. He was a man we knew casually and he knew us as oddball writers, misfits in the region. What interested him most about us was that somehow we made a living at it. And he often had questions about the business aspects of the literary profession. He marveled that it could take more than a few weeks to write a book. We knew each other in the small town way of imagining we knew each other all too well. Now, out of the blue, here it goes. Arlo began talking about his grandfather, who had been a deeply religious man. Or as Arlo put it, a blank good Presbyterian. His wedding present to Arlo and his bride had been a Bible which he admitted he had admired mostly because it was an expensive gift bound in white letter with their names and the date of their wedding set in gold lettering on the cover. I left it in its box and it ended up in our bedroom closet, Arlo told us. But, he said, for months afterward, every time we saw Grandpa, he'd ask me how I liked that Bible. The wife had written him a thank you note and we had thanked him in person, but somehow he couldn't let it lie. He'd always ask about it. Finally... Arlo grew curious as to why the old man kept after him. Well, he said, the joke was on me. I finally took that Bible out of the closet and I found that granddad had placed a $20 bill at the beginning of the book of Genesis and at the beginning of every book of that blank thing, over 
$1,300 in all, and he knew I'd never find it. We laughed over this with Arlo, and he began talking about the interest he could have made had he found that money sooner. Thirteen hundred bucks was a lot of money in them days, he said, shaking his head. That's it. The end. That's it. No moralizing. No application, just the end. Look. There's nothing left. You've got to turn the page. You get the next chapter. Which, of course, drives the reader to say, well, what was it? Why was I reading this chapter? And you go back to the first sentence. The scariest story I know about the Bible is this. That's not a story about the Bible. That's a story about Arlo. Or is it? Because Arlo just didn't get it, did he? Arlo is dying of cancer. Dying of cancer on a Saturday night. And he remembers his old granddad who gave him a Bible once upon a time. Wished I'd found the money sooner. I could have made some interest off of that. He laughed. The end. Because he died. The end. Without getting it. He didn't get it. Do you get it? Do you? Do you wonder from whence cometh all that you have and all that you are or in a spiritualized version of Arlo are you and I scrambling through life oblivious to the giver because we're enamored with the gifts hey let me ask you what may may appear to be a totally unrelated question it is not have you ever wondered I have have you ever wondered why it is that it seems unselfish people have a knack for being able to catch the eye and the ear of God more, more than selfish people. Have you ever noticed that? Huh. I'll tell you what tipped me off to that discovery. I'm reading an old familiar story. I mean, you know the story. It's a story about a centurion. You know what a centurion is? Of course you do. Centurion. Roman commander over 100 proud, brutish, armed to the teeth Roman warriors, occupying warriors. The, the particular uh, regiment is called the Italian Regiment. And the name of the centurion, you remember his name? Cornelius. I'm thinking about Cornelius. And you remember that this particular pagan, because they were all pagan, this particular pagan centurion had a heart for the divine. You remember that? In fact, he was known as a God-fearer. I, I need to put the, hit the pause button real quick here. You know what, ladies and gentlemen? We, we are going to have to recognize that there are going to be now more and more in our third millennial society, more and more pagan, pagan God-fearers. We're running out of believers. The postmodern, post-Christian, secular West is pagan. And we, you know, we're going to have to adapt our evangelistic strategies to, to try to hit this new target because if we don't hit this target, it's over. Which is why Karen and I were in England just a few days ago for a week. You know why? Because the church in England is saying, what are we going to do now? The church in England has become an immigrant church. And they, my hat is off to the leadership of the church in England because they're saying, we're not connecting with the indigenous populace. We have got to try something new or we're going to just simply shrink up and be blown away. And so we spent one Sabbath up in Wolverhampton, you know, 2,000 Avenues in a little civic center, <clears throat> excited, thinking, what can we do? We went the next Sabbath to London, Wembley Sports Arena. 
7,000. Largest gathering of Adventists, the conference president said, in the history of, the, of England. Why? Why are all these Adventists coming together? Because they realize we have got to change. We've got to shift the paradigm. You know what they're doing now? This is something. Now I get back to Cornelius. They are now starting what they call life development groups. This whole mission is called lifedevelopment.info, and you can find that on the web. But they're starting these little cafe groups all over England, Scotland, Wales, Ireland, and Europe. They're starting them. Why? Because postmoderns want to belong before they believe. So they're going to build relationships. And then in March, I'll go over for 10 nights out of London, uplink onto a satellite, drop down to every cafe group with a new, no more coming in, quoting the scripture, but now coming in under the radar screen to tap into their felt needs. Why? Because Cornelius, pagan, educated, professional, has a heart for God, but you have, we, we have to find a new way. To the likes of Cornelius. Anyway, I'm reading the story of Cornelius. And I found the clue that suggests God's ear, God's, God's eye is especially attracted to the unselfish. Would you find that story of Cornelius? Little book of Acts. Find it in Acts. I want to share this story with you. Just a few verses of the story, actually. Acts chapter 10. Acts chapter 10. Let's pick it up in verse 1. You've read the story before. We don't, need to, we don't need to unpack the whole story. But I want you to... This, this little clue just leaped out in this particular translation. I'm in the New International Version today. All right? Acts chapter 10, verse 1. At Caesarea. A big Roman fort there. Pilate the governor ruled oftentimes from Caesarea. So there were Roman soldiers. At Caesarea, there was a, a man named Cornelius, a centurion, in what was known as the Italian Regiment. He and all his family were devout and God-fearing. He gave generously to those in need, and he prayed to God regularly. Verse 3, one day at about three in the afternoon, he had a vision. He distinctly saw an angel of God who came to him and said, Cornelius, exclamation mark. What is it? Cornelius stared at him in fear. What is it, Lord? He asked. The angel answered, Your prayers and gifts to the poor have come up as a memorial offering before God. Now, send men to Joppa to bring back a man named Simon who's called Peter. He's staying with Simon the Tanner, whose house is by the sea. When the angel, verse 7, who, had, who spoke to him had gone, Cornelius quickly called two of his servants and a devout soldier who was one of his attendants. He told them everything that had happened, and he sent them to Joppa. And you remember what happens. They go to Joppa. They find Peter. Peter's having this crazy dream. You remember that? The dream setting him up. Peter goes with them, comes back to the house there in Caesarea. The entire pagan family is gathered. Peter tells the good news, the gospel of Jesus. The Holy Spirit is poured out, and the, the whole tribe is baptized. You remember the story. Now, what caught my eye, though? Did you, did, you catch, did you catch what the angel said? Look, go back to verse 4. What the angel says, why Cornelius is being noted. Cornelius, you know, the angel has called his name. And then verse 4, Cornelius stared at the angel in fear. What is it, Lord, he asked. And the angel answered, your prayers and gifts to the poor have come up as a memorial offering before God. Did you catch that? Hey, you got God's attention, man. You're praying and you're giving... He knows you. It's come up, by the way, like a memorial gift. A word straight out of the Greek Old Testament that was used to describe when they took the grain, you remember, and the priest mixed the grain and the oil and it made this wispy little smoke all day long. Symbol of the prayers of the saved. Isn't that something? The angel, the angel says, you pagan, your prayers are just like the prayers of the saved. Just a reminder, ladies and gentlemen, those of us who are working with post-Christians in the workplace, 
those of us who have post-Christian, secular, next-door neighbors, do you know what? Some of them, their prayers are getting to the very same throne room at the very same speed your prayers are getting there at. Come on, Cornelius, pagan. But he's watched the Jews for a while and he says, you know what? This, this, this pantheon of gods, this is crazy. They're right, one God. Your prayers and your gifts for the poor. Oh, God, did you notice that? God has an eye and an ear for unselfish people. In fact, may I just put, it, put the sentence this way? This is the sentence you can take home today on Memorial Day weekend. Unselfish hearts attract the attention of God. That's it. I'm going to share another story with you. This one, this one was in the New Testament. Let's go back to the Old Testament. Story about a, a starving widow and a hungry prophet. One more story, huh? Uh, Old Testament, First Kings. I tell you, I, I, I guess it's because I just, I, I think Elijah is just the greatest guy who ever lived. I don't know why, but I just think, whoa, that guy is something else. And so anytime there's a story that has to do with Elijah, I just love going back to that story. This is First uh, Kings chapter 17. I want to share this story with you. You know, I don't know if you listen to Pastor Skip's prayer. You know, when our pastors pray up front, they're praying. They're not doing something so that we can get on with it once the something's over. They're praying. They're thinking about the prayer. They're putting words in my mind. I never know the prayer before they pray it. So I have to follow it. I follow it. I just follow along. Whoa, where's he going with this prayer? And did you hear Pastor Skiff's prayer? He says, you know, oh God, we don't even understand that we have a problem with idolatry and the worship of idols. And now I'm thinking, wow, 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 what idols do I have in my life? Here is Elijah. You know, I just tell you this. Last night, uh, Friday nights after the family's in bed, I like to go off to be in my study alone. Not to work on my sermon now, but just to have some time alone to think, to pray, to, to meditate. And I don't know, I, I guess because this story was coming up, I was drawn to the life of Elijah. And so I, re, I went back and re, refreshed my memory with the life of this, this great champion of God. And I thought to myself, man, oh man... Oh, man, you know, here we are. Here was this prophet who, who thundered against the idolatry that had stolen the hearts of God's people. And I'm thinking, God, it's third millennium time. What's up with us? What's happening with the people of God? You know, do I have other gods before me? Are we preoccupied with the less than the best? Have we compromised our souls? Man, God, this... How long will it take? I mean, you know, 20 years, thank you, Jesus, but one of these days, aren't you going to just break loose in our midst? What's it going to take, God? I mean, do you ever think thoughts like this? Huh? Do you ever? No, I'm the only one. You do? You know, I think, uh, sometimes I imagine God wants us to think those thoughts and maybe, maybe become a little bit urgent in our praying. Say, God, come on, please. Pour out your spirit. Man, we, we, we are dead. We're, we're sound asleep. Well, Israel is... They're gone. They're into idolatry. And so Elijah, God just raises up this unknown. Now, this is verse 1 of chapter 17. Now, Elijah the Tishbite from Tishba. His name means Yahweh is my God. You know, remember when Jesus cried out? Remember Jesus on the cross? Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. You remember that? And they said, oh, he's calling Elijah. Eliyah. See, they thought he was calling Elijah. Eliyah means Yahweh is Eli, Eli, my God, my God. His very name is a testimony. Now Elijah said to Ahab, verse 1, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives, whom I serve, 
There will be neither dew nor rain in the next few years except at my word. Then the word of the Lord came and said, boy, you get out of there like a flash. And so God's instructions, verse 3, leave here, turn eastward and hide in the Kareth ravine east of the Jordan. You'll drink from the brook and I have ordered the ravens to feed you there. So he did what the Lord had told him. He went to the Kareth ravine east of the Jordan and stayed there. And the ravens brought him bread and meat. Yep, that's right. Bread and meat. They brought him bread and meat in the morning. And they brought him bread and meat in the evening. And he drank from the brook. Verse 7. Sometime later, the brook dried up because there had been no rain in the land. You know what? Sometimes, even though you're living faithfully for God, I mean, you're living faithfully for Him. Sometimes the brook just dries up. It's just a, it's, it's a consequence of living in a world where the enemy still rules. And God does not keep the brooks from drying up. Some of you are going through a financial brook that's dried up. You're out of money. And you're saying, I can't go on anymore. It must be that I am, I am not faithful with God. That doesn't have to be what the message is. Sometimes just living on this earth, the brook dries up and you experience the drought as well. The brook's dried up. By the way, God did say this. I love this. Isaiah Isaiah, uh, 33, verse 16. His bread will be supplied and water will not fail fail him. You know what? It doesn't matter how, how dry your brook is right now. David said in Psalm 37, I have been young and I am old and I have never seen the righteous forsaken or his seed begging bread. If you're going through a crisis right now, i.e., God will take care of you. I promise. If you trust Him, He'll take care of you. You're going to get through this. You're going to make it. But God says, I'm sorry, Elijah. You're just stuck. No water for you either, huh? And in verse 8, then the word of the Lord came to him, verse 9, go at once to Zarephath of Sidon and stay there. I have commanded a widow in that place to supply you with food. So he went to Zarephath, and when he came to the town gate, a widow was there gathering sticks, and he called to her and asked, Would you bring me a little water in a jar so that I may have a drink? She said, Well, you know, she doesn't know who this guy is. She said, Okay, I'll go get you some water. As she's turning to get the water, she said, Hey, wait a minute, lady. Hold it, hold it. Could you also make me some bread? I'm hungry. I'm not only thirsty, I'm hungry. And that stops her dead in her sandals. She slowly pivots around, and she looks into the face of this stranger. And notice what she says here in verse 12. As surely as the Lord your God lives. I don't even worship your God. I am a pagan. But as surely as the Lord your God lives, I'm going to tell you the truth, my man. I am out of food. I'm gathering a few sticks here. We're going to have a last supper, me and my boy. And then it's over. We are dead of starvation. Elijah looks back into her face and he says, let me tell you something, woman. You go back and do exactly what I told you. I want water and I want bread. And if you will bring me that bread, trust the God I serve. That oil will never run out and you will never be out of flour. You will be fine. And she pivots again and she goes and I love the story. You know what happens? She never runs out. Thank you, Jesus. The world may be going through a lack right now. The the economy, who knows where this crazy economy is going, but God will take care of you. You may be down to your last supper, but God hasn't forgotten who you are. Don't you give up on God. He will never give up on you. So what's the big deal here, Dwight? Well, the big deal is, did you notice what God said to Elijah? He said, Elijah, I want you to find a woman. I've seen a woman over there in Zarephath, and she is unselfish. You go find her. You know why? Because unselfish people attract the attention of God. That's why. 
Wow. Unselfish hearts. Isn't that something? How many widows lived in that town? Oh, I bet there were a lot of widows. How many centurions were in Caesarea? A whole lot of centurions. That was a big garrison. But unselfish hearts attract the attention of God. You know why? Hey, look, here's a piece of cake. Because God Himself is unselfish. That's why. You remember your mother used to say to you, birds of a feather flock together, like attracts like. And also, by the way, like is attracted to like. And God being as unselfish as He is, whoa, He says, let me get close to that woman. Wow, let me get close to that man. Let me tell you something, pagan, your prayers and your gifts to the poor have gotten the attention of God. Wow. Because unselfish hearts are attracted, attractive to God. You know why? Because unselfishness is the essence of the divine character. Hey, remember last week? Were you here last week? God's glorious freebies. Those of you who weren't here last week, maybe you can go to our website, www.pmchurch.org. We spent some time last week looking at these. Can I just review them? Because you, you had a study guide last week. Number one, physical life, no charge. You're breathing and living right now. Thank you, Jesus. Number two, eternal life, salvation forever and ever. No charge. Number three, Number three, can't buy it. Peace of mind, can't buy it. Number four, promise of heaven. There is, there is no money on earth that will buy that for you. Number five, possessions and provisions. Number six, the Holy Spirit. But the best of all, number seven, all things. You remember this text from last week, Romans 8:32. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with Jesus, graciously give us all? All things. Hey, folks, you can't get more unselfish than giving everything you have away. He's given it all. You can't get more unselfish than God. You see, unselfishness is the essence of the divine character. Ah, this is a classic quotation from a little book called Desire of Ages. Take a look at this. And look at the cross, the picture of the cross, while we read this. At the cross of Calvary, love and selfishness stood face to face. Here was their crowning manifestation. The gift of Christ reveals the Father's heart. It declares that while God's hatred of sin is as strong as death. Oh, hold on now. Look at this. His love for the sinner is stronger than death. Having undertaken our redemption, He will spare nothing, however dear, which is necessary to the completion of His work. Oh, get this. No truth essential to our salvation is withheld. No miracle of mercy is neglected. No divine agency left uh, unemployed. And I love this. Favor is heaped upon favor. Gift upon gift. The whole... Read these next words out loud with me, will you? The whole treasury of heaven. You know, you and I say that all the time. Oh, well, the whole treasury of heaven. Oh, well, God emptied the whole treasury of heaven. It doesn't even get through to our minds. Just look at that cross. What the cross is about is the emptying of the whole treasury of heaven. You know what? We probably ought to go to the cross every day of our lives. Mr. Professor in the religion department, wouldn't that make sense? Go to the cross every day of our lives. Just read Matthew 27. Just read 20, verses 24 through 54. Every day of your life. The whole treasury of heaven is open to those He seeks to save. Oh, isn't this something? Having collected the riches of the universe and laid open the resources of infinite power, God gives them into the hands of Christ. And he says, hey, 
all these are for man and woman. Use these gifts to convince them that there is no greater love than mine in heaven or earth. Their greatest happiness will be found in loving me. End quote. It's the unselfishness. It's the essence of the divine character. And Calvary is proof. Like attracts like. Which is why unselfish hearts attract the attention of God. It was that way with the Roman centurion. It was that way with a Sidonian widow. It can be that way with you. It can be that way with me. And so I need to ask you a question before I sit down. Do you have... Come on, come on. Ask yourself this. Do you have an unselfish heart? Do I have an unselfish heart? Let me tell you about a letter I mailed this last week. I was writing a letter to some friends of mine. So, wrote the address on the envelope. Scribbled it out there. Lucky for me, I decided to borrow one of those March of Dimes. Do you get the March of, Di- March of Dimes uh, freebie stickers? They're great to use. So I said, I want to use one of these free stickers. Put it up there. Lucky for me, I did because I was racing to work the next morning. Threw that mail, uh, threw that letter into the mailbox. Went to work two days later, one night. I'm going through this last week. I'm going through the mail. And I come across a letter with handwriting. I said, man, whoever wrote this letter hand looks just like my handwriting. I can't believe it. And I realized, oh, good night. That is. That's mine. That's the letter I mailed. Up in the corner of the letter, stamped, big words, return to sender, insufficient postage. Which is a euphemism for it. You forgot to put a stamp on it, dummy. Put a stamp on it. Oh, God bless the Berrien Springs Post Office who took mercy on me. It's just a small mistake, but very significant. And so they sent the letter back. Return to sender. Hey, you remember Arlo, the wealthy man dying of cancer? Remember Arlo? Old Arlo. Never did figure that out. Now, did he? Return to sender. He didn't even know there was a sender. Or if he did, he chose to conveniently forget about the sender. Return to boom. Return to sender. Three little words that God's of heaven stamps on 10% of everything you own. Everything. Everything you make. He takes that big old stamp in heaven and he goes, boom. Return to sender. It's called the tithe. Have you heard of it? It's called the tithe. It says 10%. Boom. Return to sender. It's fine. <laughs> of course, I said, I gave you everything. Yep, 100%. Everything you have, I gave you, but I, I don't want it all back. Boom. 10%. Return to sender. I was reading a magazine this last week and I came across this cartoon. Here's a man one evening doing the bills and his wife's looking over his shoulders. How come God gets 10% and First National Bank gets 18? You know what? Isn't that true? We don't worry about, well, hey, I got credit cards, so I'm going to use my credit cards. And we pay off that 18% to the First National Bank. goes up to 20, 29 if you get real far behind. Oh, well, who cares? It's the privilege of doing business in America. And then we grumble. Oh, man, 10, 10%. I got to return to God. What a, what a stingy God. Your beef is not with God. Your beef is with the First National Bank. Take it to them, not to God. It's 10% with Him. Ten percent. Boom. Return to sender. Stamps it right there. You know why he does that? You think he, you think he needs those pennies? 
See, you're embarrassing me, Dwight. I don't need that stuff. You know why he's doing it? Because he says, boy, I know your heart. You are selfish by nature. That's the problem with you, boy. And so I am going to give you an opportunity to deal with that selfishness. Imagine my surprise when I discovered this last week that that's why he gave tithing. I didn't know that. I found it. Since this is an academic institution, I found it in a book called Education. What's up with that? Let's put Education, page 44 on the screen. Take a look at this. The consecration to God of a tithe. Okay, that would be 10%, wouldn't it? Of a tithe of all increase. Okay, look at it. Increase. What's that mean? That's income. Hmm? Income. Income. Increase. Whether the orchard and harvest field, flocks, herds. Oh, here comes the third millennial language. Or the labor of brain. Well, that's good for this place. Or hand. See, the consecration of God of 10%. The devotion of a second tithe. That would be offerings. The devotion of a second tithe for the relief of the poor and other benevolent uses tended to keep fresh before the people the truth of God's ownership of all and of their opportunity to be channels of His blessings. Now get this, clincher. It was a training adapted to kill out all narrowing selfishness and to cultivate breadth and nobility of character. Hey, did you, did you catch that? Did you? Come on. Selfishness narrows, selfishness narrows the arteries in my heart. So God says, man, you got, boy, you, you got hardening of the arteries. I'm going to give you spiritual angioplasty. Now I'm looking out and I see some of you that have had angioplasty. You know exactly how that works. I'm going to give you spiritual angioplasty. I'm going to go in there and if you will, if you will return to me the 10% that's already mine, and if you will give out of gratitude, you know what? It's just going to, Roto-Rooter time. Whoa! I am going to open your heart up so that you will have an unselfish heart just like mine. That's why He did it. Do you think He needs your money? Come again. It isn't for Him. It's for you and me that He's asked us to do this. Selfishness is heart disease. And I don't want heart disease, do you? I don't want hardening of the spiritual arteries so that I can get grumpier and stingier and meaner and more selfish. I want that heart to open up. I want God to just, come on, Dwight, just going to, come on, scrape it open for me. Tithing and giving are God's cure for heart disease. Return, boom, return to sender. He stamps it on our possessions. He stamps on 10% of our income. You do that, God says, and I am going to take care of you. I gotta go back to this. Uh, Malachi 3. Did you, isn't this something? Verse 8, Malachi 3. Will a man or woman rob God? God is speaking here. Yet you rob me. Oh God, I do not rob you. Oh yes. You ask how? I'll tell you how. In tithes and offerings. You're robbing me. Verse 9, he says, look, you're under a curse. The whole nation of you, because you're robbing me. But listen, listen, verse 10, he says, hold on. Bring the whole tithe of yours into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. And then, 
Come on, boy. Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven, pour out so much blessing, you won't even have room enough to receive it. Give me that 10% back. Boom, return it to me. And you know what? I'm going to give you more than you had when you started. If you return that to the sender. If you return to the sender, what is mine? I'll bless you, which of course isn't always the way the story ends. So today I want to end with a story that doesn't end the way the stories always end. Let me read it to you, and then I'll sit down. All right. Story written by Evadine Peters. Title of this story, Bed Linens, a Coin Purse, and a Mother's Witness. It's in Ron Knott's wonderful book, Over and Over Again. I now read... It was wartime. Household goods were scarce or non-existent. My mother read in the Kansas City Star that there would be a linen sale the following day at Jones Department Store. She determined she had the necessary $12 to cover two sets of sheets and pillowcases. Wouldn't that be nice? $12 back then. Hmm. Then she made plans to arrive at the store early, be in a short line, go home with the the top-of-the-line bed linens. Apparently, other women had read the same advertisement and decided upon the same strategy. And so when Mother arrived, a crowd was around the door waiting for the 9 a.m. opening. When the doors opened, the crowd surged to the tables of bed linens and quickly formed a line at the cash register. Pickpockets, too, read about sales that bring crowds, and crowds provide perfect setting, a perfect setting for applying their trade. So, of course, these types were on hand to do what they do best, steal from women caught in the jostle whose minds are distracted by the stress of the event. You guessed it. Only when she reached the cashier did Mother learn... Uh-oh, she learned of her loss. She was frantic at this financial disaster, still clutching the bed linen, unable to believe she could have been robbed without the slightest recognition it was happening. Mother emptied out the contents of her bag, hoping against hope that she had somehow overlooked the wallet, but it was really gone. She saw her two-sided coin purse that held her 10% tithe on one side and 10% offering mother m- money rather on the other Now, considerably more than $12 was in the purse and in the pressure of the moment. Uh She considered buying the precious linens with the tithe money and replacing it later. But she couldn't bring herself to use this money she had set aside as sacred. Distressed, perplexed, still clutching the bed linens, she stepped away from the cash register not knowing what to do. A few minutes later, the store manager found... Her wallet, which had been tossed behind a radiator. And it was empty. Mother boarded a bus for the trip home. It wasn't a happy day. And the experience didn't have the kind of happy ending God sometimes sees fit to work out at other times. Mother came home without those bed linens or the $12. Despite the disappointment, Mother's trust in God's promises and her conviction about giving only increased at the time of her death, this daughter's writing, at the time of her death, I found in her handbag a later model divided coin purse. It was hand-lettered on the inside leather with the words tithe 10% on one side and offering 20% on the other. 
the end. Because you see, unselfish hearts attract the attention of God. And when we get to heaven one day, you will discover this to be true. Everyone there in heaven will have an unselfish heart just like God's.